Hello, and welcome back to Digital Health Forward. I'm your host, Dandy Zhu, and today I had the chance to chat with Matt McCambridge, co-founder and CEO of Eden Health. Eden Health combines telehealth, in-person primary care, behavioral health, and insurance navigation with what Matt calls a medical home method, centered around creating trusted relationships between the patient and a dedicated care team. Since launching in 2017, the company has partnered with more than 100 employers and has more than 40,000 covered members. In 2020, recurring revenue grew by 800% year over year, in part due to the company's COVID-19 response. In this episode, Matt and I chat about the genesis and early days of building Eden Health, why and how Eden partners with employers and commercial real estate landlords as buyers of healthcare services, how Eden has been able to achieve such high engagement from its users, and how Eden has supported employers and patients during COVID-19 through testing, screening, and back-to-work support. Hope you enjoy the conversation. Hey, Matt, it's great to have you on the show. Hey, thanks for having me. Yeah, really excited to learn more about Eden. I have so many questions and also wanted to share a big congrats for closing that Series C round and announcing uh, last week. Yeah, we're super excited about what's uh, coming next. So it's been quite a kickoff to the year already. Yeah, well, let's dive right in. So a little over five years ago now, you and Scott, your co-founder, started Eden Health with this mission to create a world where every person has a relationship with a trusted healthcare provider. Tell us about why this is a mission that's personal to you and important to you. Yeah, well, every good healthcare experience really starts with a trusted clinical relationship. That's both on the patient level, so you and your provider coming together and creating good plan, but also even at the systems level, whether that's groups like the Mayo Clinic or Intermountain Health or the Cleveland Clinic to countries that orient their healthcare system around these sort of trusted primary clinical relationships. And for me, like most people who I know who started healthcare businesses, you've seen the problems of healthcare sort of firsthand uh, with your family members, maybe with yourself. For me, I've watched many family members, including my sister, go through years of really difficult traumatic health problems, dozens of trips to specialists, over a dozen trips to the ER in the case of my sister, and really nobody who was coordinating the care whatsoever. And that experience of being kind of so left alone in such a fragmented patient experience is in some ways can be worse than some of the physical symptoms of of the condition itself. So Fast forward four years for my sister, she ended up finding a primary care provider who was coordinating her care, who found the right couple specialists, got the right medication, and she grew out of this condition that can be fatal and um, wow. lived totally full life. She went off to college, she actually went to Harvard, and it is this kind of nirvana of healthcare when you mm-hmm. find this trusted clinical relationship right up against the worst version of healthcare system. So nothing really could be more important to me or for that matter, the people I care about than this mission. Yeah. And it's really scary to think about what the counterfactual could have been if that primary care provider didn't end up meeting your sister, right? Yeah. That's a counterfactual that a lot of people live, right? Yeah. You know, on a daily basis. And so I think that when, you know, in, in some of the ways that uh, healthcare is changing, and I think in this way, I think it can be disappointing is when people aren't going towards these longitudinal 
clinical relationships. You know, when you're trying to just take kind of episodic care to the extreme where you get a new provider every single time, or that experience isn't really about building trusted longitudinal relationships, I think that's going in fundamentally the wrong direction. A direction that we really need to go, uh, in my opinion, is leveraging technology and everything that is accessible through, you know, whether it's the phone or mobile clinicians or other other types of technology or even new payment models, and really going back to the point that trusted clinical relationship is the foundation of all good care. Definitely. I want to dive more into that concept and this idea of a medical home later in the interview as well. But take us back to the early days. You and Scott both left college going into investing roles at VC firms and then reconnecting later. But tell us about how you guys ended up deciding at that point in time that this was the right time to start Eden. Yeah. Well, we met the third day of college and have known each other and been good friends ever since. So we weren't really contemplating starting a company together, though. We're just college friends who were passionate about some of what we did for our career. And basically, when we got obsessed with this concept of employers really being able to change the way healthcare is delivered in the United States. And Mm -hmm. we started discussing this together on a trip we were taking. And what we identified was employers are sort of unique buyers in the system. They care about experience, they care about clinical quality, and they care about cost. And in many ways, they're aligned with the patient, their employees, who they're buying healthcare on behalf of. And that's a, a somewhat atypical, where at the insurance company is a, a step or more removed from what that patient's lived experience is. And so employers provide a unique ability to create a different model. They also provide healthcare for 160 million people in the United States. And so if you're providing healthcare at that scale, really any intervention in the healthcare system that is broad-based is going to impact employers or needs them to to make that change. So we got obsessed with this idea of of bringing these clinical relationships and incubating them really in the employer environment Mm -hmm. and using that as a way to uh, jumpstart our story as as a company. Interesting. So it started with this hypothesis around employers, the influence they could have on healthcare, the alignment of incentives, it sounds like, with patients. What did you guys do to start validating this concept that there was some sort of willingness to pay for a product? And what was the original vision for the product? So, you know, we had this idea when we were both 25 and we had absolutely no credibility whatsoever in healthcare. And we knew that. And, you know, we knew that we were learning about the system as well. Uh, Healthcare is complicated. You can't really logic your way into how it works. Uh, Mm -hmm. It works in some unique (laughs) ways. Uh, No one, as has been said many times, would design the healthcare system the way it's designed in the US. So what we really needed to do was, our initial thesis was, we need to sell a customer. And once we sell a customer, an employer, that is, we would know that we had something there. So we went out and talked to every single person who would listen to us. And we had a lot of conversations, talked to primary care providers, we talked to specialists, you talked to other entrepreneurs, you talked to potential customers. And we kind of made this pact that before we build anything, before we hire anybody, 
before we raise any money, we were going to get our first sale. So it was a lot of PowerPoint presentations. And so we basically just did that for about 10 months and we were able to close our first customer and they got a great deal, I have to say. And uh, <laughs> then we were able to close three additional customers after that. And mm-hmm. we sort of said, okay, you know, we're going to launch in April of next year. And so we launched in, uh, we kind of closed the customers at the end of 2016. And then um, we launched April in 2017 with our clinic and, and virtual care product. But it was really about validating it by getting customers to say, hey, we're willing to make a move. And that's when we were able to add a couple of people to the team, add some capital and start building in earnest. Yeah. And right now, you know, we hear a ton about the consumerization of healthcare and this whole wave of new primary care providers. But if we think about it, you know, One Medical started in 2007, Iora in 2010, Oak Street in 2012. And, you know, these companies hadn't really been around for that long and they hadn't yet built the level of scale that we see today and the level of awareness either. So when you guys were talking to employers about this vision, some of them must have gotten it right away and some of them probably had (laughs) a ton of questions, right? But help us contextualize, like at the time, what was the understanding of this reinvention for the patient? And did people really get on board? Yeah, well... All of those companies that you mentioned are amazing. And I think the astonishing thing about it is, despite them being amazing, nobody's that big in this space, Mm -hmm. right? You look at one medical, a half a million lives, which is fantastic, but like compared to the opportunity of 340 million or, or so people in the United States, there is just a massive untapped opportunity, obviously, uh, let alone in the uh, employer space in, in specific. And then back then too, City Block and Oak Street weren't the names they are now, right? Iora and One Medical were, were definitely more prominent. One Medical was a lot, lot smaller, the same with Iora. So I think that these groups deserve huge credit for really trailblazing a bit there. But you know, when we go back there, I mean, this was an uncommon thing for employers to do that back when we were starting the organization. And kind of interestingly, actually, in my opinion, you look back to Kaiser Permanente in their history, right? They've got, call it 12 million people that they cover now, but they actually started with a couple of unions doing on-site medical care back in the 40s. And so mm-hmm. the story of employers delivering healthcare services is really old. And much of it has been delivered at manufacturing sites having to do with workers' compensation and dealing with physical care. But the maturation of what kind of health can be for employers has been going on for a long time. So we weren't like savants trying to <laughs> figure finding this out. We just had an idea that we thought employers would buy healthcare uniquely. But it turns out this was decades long trends that were moving in our direction. And right. I think that we're happy to be a part of the story. Yeah. And so I guess when you first started and you started building this combination of a Mm -hmm. hybrid clinic, how did you think about doing this hybrid care model Mm -hmm. with virtual care plus the brick and mortar clinic versus just virtual care or just brick and mortar? Yeah. Well, you know, it's funny. We would have these discussions about like, what is the minimum viable product for a doctor's office? And (laughs) we would come back to the fact that it was a doctor's office. And <laughs> like it is ultimately the clinical relationship. And here are the, some of the things that I've been saying already between the clinician and the patient that makes that magical 
in some ways. And so we really couldn't get away from this concept, our minds, that uh, you needed that. And then I think that the other piece on the virtual side is the pandemic has demonstrated like there is obviously substantial opportunity and virtual care can be made a lot better and and it's substantial opportunity for virtual care to really cover a lot of things. But it's highlighted in some ways the fact that you still need physical care, all right? You need screenings, you need testing, you know, you need laboratory work. And all that stuff that people have been putting off, there's a lot of things that virtual care can do, but it does it's not a full replacement. And the other piece is for people who might be wary of virtual care, having a onboarding ramp to care that is something that's much more familiar, something that made a lot of sense to us. So when we were thinking about launching, we were like, okay, well, why don't we just create something that would be as open to what the patient could need, meet them exactly where they are as -hmm. we could possibly think of. And the, the, the idea was, okay, you got a primary care office and then the extension of all that care. And really what became immediately our main venue for care was the virtual care. It was basically messaging back and forth in our app. So that was the initial idea. We were gonna really try to just figure out, meet the patients where they were, experience what they needed and and how they use the system, how our clinicians used it. And then we were gonna build kind of more customized uh, software after that. Yeah, well, that early decision has allowed you guys to have a great amount of flexibility as consumer Mm -hmm. behavior has changed and Mm -hmm. the pandemic has definitely accelerated uh, the way people think about virtual care. But I completely agree that there's this in-person component that's also really important, I think, for building that trust between you and that healthcare provider, like we talked about in the mission itself. Right. When you now have this hybrid care model, though, there's so much coordination that also needs to take place between different providers, I imagine, and the care team in order to make sure that there's continuity in a patient's experience. Tell us a little bit about the buy versus build tech decisions that you guys thought about in the early days and sort of how that's evolved and what, what are the technology components that really enable you guys to provide that amazing, delightful experience for a patient? Yeah. You know, we thought about it in two ways. One was the experience kind of as you state. What is going to create the best experience for our main constituents, which are really the patient and the healthcare provider themselves. And then, of course, in our case, the the employer. But thinking about the main users on a day-to-day basis in the B2B2C model, uh, the patients and the, and the employer. So if we look at that dynamic, their main venue for interaction is one, through the app, and then two would be sort of face-to-face in the physical sites. So our perspective was we need to own the experience that that patient and their provider was going to have together, because over time, that is where the technological IP and the leverage from a software standpoint was going to be. So Mm -hmm. it doesn't really make sense for us to buy something off the shelf from a messaging standpoint. Also, at that time, the messaging tools were less sophisticated. But even so, you know, we would either find that basically these messaging tools were either too opinionated, like they were too specific, or they weren't opinionated enough. And you couldn't get the long-term leverage from a software standpoint that, mm-hmm. that you really needed to make that work. It was evident to us that the stuff that the, that the patient and the provider are going to be interacting with needed to be something we're going to build in-house. On the other hand, my perspective, and people disagree with me plenty, and they've been have extremely successful businesses. So, you know, take us with a grain of salt, but I don't think that building an electronic health record system really made sense. It it, it is a 
huge undertaking. And, you know, just think about what it needs to do. You need to be able to deal with a stub toe and a brain aneurysm, like in the same piece of software that then connects in every single state to all third-party systems at a regulatory standpoint, it needs to take into account a bunch of different state and federal guidance. Mm-hmm. And then you need to connect to the, you know, from e-prescribing basis or from a claims adjudication standpoint. It just gets so complicated to build that. It's part of the reasons why electronic health record systems are not loved, we'll say. Um, and so uh, from our perspective, like that wasn't where we, we were like, we're not going to build a 10 times better electronic health record system. There's just no way. So yeah. uh, that was a buy. Yeah, that all makes sense. <laughs> I think to the first we point, it made sense. So we'll see. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you can spend your resources on so many other things that are unique to Eden that you want to build from the ground up, right? And, and you got to think about your long-term engineering spend, you know, in terms of like, what are you going to be investing in. If you're constantly like, oh, I got to keep up with this regulation and that thing, it just is difficult, you know, to even build value elsewhere. So, you know, it's got to be cognizant of that environment. Right. And when it came to the providers themselves, how did you guys think about building up that side of the platform um, in terms of like the workforce? Yeah. So we decided we needed to employ the clinicians. And the basic reason to do that was we needed to make sure that their patients were getting the best possible experience And then our providers were operating in a very high quality way with consistency. And that ground up philosophy has served us, I think, extraordinarily well. And it's a different philosophy from having people who work with you three hours, six hours a week. And it's also a different philosophy from, uh, we're going to kind of do everything but the actual care and we're going to send you to uh, other providers. And so, you know, our standpoint was the full stack model is the thing that's going to be really transformative to patients' lives and this uh, Mm -hmm. trusted clinical relationship. And so that's what we optimized around. Got it. I want to talk a little bit more about selling to employers and also selling to or partnering with landlords, which I think is one of the most unique parts of the business. So tell us about these two channels, what they care about, if it's similar or different. Yeah, well, on the employer side, I think that they're relatively aligned to what the patient wants out of healthcare. They want something that's highly convenient. They want a high quality provider who they trust, and they want something at a reasonable price. And that is really, I think, what employers are looking for at the end of the day. They also have these intangibles of uh, retention and satisfaction. And bear in mind, healthcare is their second largest line item after wages. And so Mm -hmm. I always like the stat, uh, Starbucks spends more money on uh, healthcare than they do on coffee beans, right? So (laughs) they should care more about optimizing the uh, line item than the, the coffee bean line item. There is a focus on that for employers. And you've got to deliver something that is quality in that way. Landlords are a bit of a different situation. I mean, they're looking to attract tenants, retain tenants at a high rate and differentiate for them. I think the pandemic has changed the mentality there. We were already doing this before the pandemic, but we've seen the need for employers to really take a position on health for their tenants. And I think it's past this thing around, oh, let's do a touchless interface. You know, that's fine. But at the end of the day, that is pretty basic. And Mm -hmm. making an investment that is 
deeper in, in health and wellness is something that is really returning a lot of value to our landlord partners. So we're pretty excited about the opportunity for that. We're opening a bunch of different geographies at the moment. And so a lot more to come on the landlord side, but we've enjoyed working with them and, and growing with them. Yeah, on the landlord side, it makes a ton of sense in in theory and in thinking mm-hmm. about here this is going to improve tenant satisfaction, this is going to be mm-hmm. a great benefit. But how are you able to quantify the ROI and attribute it to Eden so that they can make this calculated decision? Or is it is it more like, hey, we know that healthcare is really important to our tenants and we know that from other tenants perhaps that are onboarded that this has created some sort of impact. But like how are you able to channel the feedback either from the tenants back to them or some other way to show the value? Everything kind of works together. So we're a, uh, employers are our main customers and commercial real estate landlords are our main landlords. And so they have a level of alignment that exists. And so if employers want the thing, then their landlord is going to be open to it. I think the other component is they have a pretty easy way to measure if it impacts retention, which is they see what the retention rates are over time. So, you know, that's not an immediate return, but they, in terms of being able to immediately validate it, but they really are looking at, do people use this service, right? We happen to have really high engagement rates. So Mm. out of every hundred employees who have access the first year, about 70 will register for the app and about 60 will have a completed clinical encounter with us which is very high from an engagement standpoint. And yeah. it's maybe like the highest used amenity of anything. And it's also so meaningful. And so I think it's I think it's a pretty logical thing for landlords to understand. And they're already mm-hmm. in the business of providing amenities, providing services to their people. In that way, I think it's both a philosophical alignment and then check your math <laughs> in terms of uh, retention as that goes forward. What do you think the high retention and engagement is a result of if you could pinpoint something that you guys are doing that others perhaps don't? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So there's not a single magic bullet to it. It is, I typically talk about it in a few ways. So one is the how much we can do for an individual. It's very, very likely when somebody has a health concern, no matter what it is, that we are going to be the easiest possible first step for them dealing with it, whether that's a prescription refill, a chronic condition, a preventative health concern, if they have a an injury, we, we have physical therapy, or we're going to get them where they need to go in the healthcare system, and it's going to be much better experience. So it's really important. People don't like to think about accessing medical services just like for fun. It is when they are not doing well. And so making sure your service is something that is easy as possible to have an on-ramp for, I think is like a really undervalued part of engagement. If, If you look at the telemedicine solution, I think you can tell a lot by how easy is it to actually register. It takes our patients 60 seconds to register on the app, and then they can start immediately getting value. For certain tools, you can see a 15-minute registration period, and it's just not really an effective way to get people utilizing services. So I think that that piece is one. We also give great experiences, so it generates strong word of mouth. And then we meet the patients really where they are. So we've got flexible ways for them to interact with us. And so you're capturing as many people as you can. I could go on, but I think that that <laughs> is a, uh, yeah, you're like, don't go on. Um, but uh, yeah, <laughs> no, that's I, I really think, helpful. <laughs> yeah. I think you got to think about it in a multimodal way. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. When it comes to the services you guys offer, 
my understanding is you guys started with primary care and there was this evolution towards behavioral health and now physical therapy and perhaps also some specialty care. Could you walk us through sort of the rationale behind those choices and what the total spectrum looks like now? Yeah, for sure. So we really started off with primary care and what we called navigation. So navigation is its most basic commitment that no matter what's going on in your health life, we are going to either provide care directly or we're going to get you where you need to go in the healthcare system. And the thing that I think is really not taken into account there for most people is the enormous cost of accessing healthcare, even when you have a even when you have insurance. And so Mm -hmm. we really think it's important that when you're referring somebody, no matter where you're referring them to, you're actually telling them, hey, here's what it's going to cost. Because if someone's worried about getting a $3,000 bill in the mail that they can't pay for, that's actually going to prevent them from accessing the service. And that unknown, I think, is really just such a crippling thing that goes on for patients. So the navigation, I think, is really important and in some ways a bit of bedrock for why I think what we're doing has been successful, in addition to primary care, of course. But the other components are, in some ways, they were sort of self-evident. So with mental health, it is such a present issue that affects your physical health, right? Like, you know, you could have presentations that are physical, but what's really going on is there's high levels of anxiety. Mm-hmm. So, you know, said another way, nearly 70% of behavioral health diagnoses occur and are diagnosed by the primary care provider. So that is really the venue for intervention. And so we had two pathways, one outsource that from a specialist to mental health providers outside of our walls or bring it in. We decided to bring it in. Mm-hmm. Physical therapy is a very frequent referral pathway from primary care. We thought that the having that together and united was was really important. And then in terms of other kinds of specialists, you know, we have second opinions that we work with specialists on, do peer-to-peer consultations. So we kind of have a lot of the specialty care integrated in some way, but we're going to keep looking at that over time in terms of what else we might want to bring in-house, what else we might want to partner with. The other setting that I think people are thinking about moving care to more and more now is the home. And I'm curious if that's something that you guys have discussed as a team, if Eden would ever play a role in actually helping deliver healthcare to a patient's home as well. Yeah, we, we know we've actually done this in, in small ways already. So we do this thing where we send providers to work sites, provide primary care encounters there, or things like flu shots or testing, but a variety of services that are appropriate to get. And we've, during the pandemic, done more in the home. It's not a primary business line for us, but it's a, it's a business line that is uh, growing. And so I think that there's just no question that care will increasingly move outside of the four walls of the office. And because of that, the home is a very logical place for care. And there's going to be increasing amounts of care delivered there. So I just see this trend of virtualization, movement out of the four walls of the clinic continuing to happen over time. I don't think it's going to be that fast, but it'll continue to happen. Yeah, there's so many interesting players now tackling different parts of that home health um, system. But I think Uh we're seeing so much progress enabled by also the, the data and remote monitoring type of devices that patients are now becoming more familiar with and being able to actually transmit those things um, is so core to be able to fully deliver health at home. So, Well, part of the idea of these offices are a little bit like archaic in some ways, because basically you're trying to figure out how does the patient live a healthful life in a way that works for them. 
And that's why this home piece is so great because somebody can continue to live their life without disrupting it. It's not like getting medical services is something that anybody likes having happen. So, you know, making sure it's more integrated for them and they can live a more healthful, well life is, is, uh, I think it's, it's definitely supported by the home care. Yeah. Well, it's also great that I feel like there's so many point solutions in digital health, but Mm -hmm. when you look at something like Eden, like you guys are creating a whole new system. And that system level of change, I think, is going to have much greater impact potentially, you know, as you think about expanding and just the runway that you have um, as a player in the healthcare system. Definitely our goal. (laughs) (laughs) Well, shifting gears a little bit, I want to talk more in depth about COVID and how Mm -hmm. that has opened up new opportunities for Eden. Um, I've heard a bit about some testing and partnerships that you guys have done to do health screenings, but tell us about how Eden has responded and whether the pandemic has influenced your priorities moving forward. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I see there's basically three main themes that we were actually investing in pre-COVID that have been dramatically accelerated by, by COVID. So the first is this longitudinal virtual clinical model. We, whenever you reach out virtually, you get the same provider team, you have the same, uh, you even have the usual provider. And so you actually build a trusted clinical relationship virtually. That's been accelerated during COVID as, especially as people have moved away from some of their more long-term trusted in-person medical relationships. So the potential for that virtual longitudinal care is really obvious. The second is navigation. Just uh, think about all the different confusion that's been going on with coronavirus. What's true? What's not true? Where do you get tests? All that Mm -hmm. kind of stuff. So navigation is really central to what we do. And then, you know, the opportunity to add in-person care. We're just talking about home care. But I think that in-person care in general, we've seen the needs, whether that's testing or vaccinations or screenings or or what have you, the in-person care really is important. So I see those three themes, they were already going on pre-COVID, but those have been really dramatically accelerated with COVID and, and will continue to be features of the market. The other thing I'll just mention is employers, landlords, plus people who buy healthcare are thinking about it differently. And the safety and the need to track things like vaccination status and testing status, like that didn't really exist before. And so groups are taking a proactive role necessarily in in the health of their employees. And I think that that trend is also one that we'll see continue. I was reading about how there's this idea of TSA pre-check for COVID in terms of supporting employers with back to work. But could you tell us a little bit more about what's behind that? Yeah. So employers have a fundamental need to protect and support the health of their patients, right? It's If you're not building a COVID-safe working environment, that is a huge problem as an employer. And so not to mention the public health and, and personal risks that go along with that. So our way to do this is coming at it really from a medical perspective and from a clinical perspective. So using all of our HIPAA privacy and clinical knowledge to make sure that we are clearing people from a screening standpoint, testing people when appropriate, and mm-hmm. then providing the employer a way to manage and prevent super spreader events at their work site. So we've done hundreds of thousands of screeners of patients, employees who'd be going to the work site and preventing potentially 1,500 of these super spreader on-site events. And so I just think it's really important to think about this experience during COVID uh, as an example of 
how to deal with a medical uh, crisis in the future and ways to learn from it, because it's not the only one that's ever going to happen in our lifetimes. Right. Really not even the only one that's, yeah, right. (laughs) No kidding. Um, And it's really not even the only one that's going on today. I mean, you could think of in a different way, whether it's obesity or musculoskeletal or mental health care, like there's a lot of these crises going on and there's an opportunity to really intervene and help people out in a, in a very significant way. Yeah. And right now, Eden is only available through your employer, right? Like as an individual, people can't get access to Eden. That's right. Yeah. Employers make this available <laughs> to all of their employees. So whether it's a manufacturing company or a financial services company or somebody with a generous staff to the CEO, you know, they all have access to Eden. I was reading about how a lot of the employers that you guys work with are small to medium sized. Is that true? And was that an intentional decision? So we focus on employers that are between about 100 and 5,000 employees in size. But yeah, we work with some employees that are bigger. We work with some that are smaller. But that market has been underserved in my, from my perspective. And there's a huge number of customers there. And so it's been a great place for us to work. And we have a strong product for those groups um, yeah. in particular. Great. Well, I want to shift to some parting reflections. Um, We touched on this a little bit, but would love to hear what your long-term vision is for Eden Health. (laughs) Well, I got to go back to our mission. It's uh, creating a world where every person has a relationship with a trusted healthcare provider. So you'll be seeing a lot of Eden Health around in the long term. But, you know, just uh, I think that practically speaking, everything we're doing is going back to that. So you know, when we're thinking about the future of the product, it's how do we make this really accessible for people? Always be the easiest place to go. How do we bring more care to their fingertips um, in our app, uh, in our locations, at the home, you know, we're talking about. And so that's really what it's all about. I do see a long future ahead for Eden, which I'm very excited about. Yeah, excited to follow the journey. What are some of the biggest lessons that you feel like you've learned over these last six years of building Eden, whether they're personal or or business related? I think that the, the importance of culture and really being true to a vision is so evident in uh, what we've been building. I spend a lot of time thinking and talking about how to build an effective culture for our organization and how to align our mission, our vision, our strategy statement, our values into you know the daily work that we have and have that really come out in everything we do. And I just, I can't really overstate how important I view that to be. So mm-hmm. culture being intentional, but also like being honest with it. And so if your mission is, as I've now said 1700 times, <laughs> but I, you know, I'm repeating it this way for a reason, because I repeat it this way, like in other scenarios, you have to believe it and you have to be true to that. So, uh, and your employees hold you accountable. So, I mean, that's a huge reflection on it. And then yeah. I was also going to say, just like grit, you know, work mm-hmm. through it and uh, you're going to try things that are not going to work and that's going to be fine. And uh, you'll, you'll figure it out. <laughs> How would you describe Eden's culture? Yeah, it's a good question. It's hard to encapsulate a culture so briefly. We have six values. And the first value is patients first, which is uh, aligning to everything else we've been talking about. The other value that I'd call out is this value that reads, speak candidly and presume good faith. Mm -hmm. And 
I think that is so fundamental to building anything. You know, it's people are going to say things that are, you know, not perfect and um, having the understanding that that person is really aligned with you on your team and you're trying to get the same thing and being able to come at that from a good faith standpoint. And then also being able to hear candid thoughts like you need to, you really need the best ideas to win and be able to discuss those openly. And if people aren't being candid about them, and if people aren't uh, presuming good faith in, in your candidness, like you're just not going to get there. I mean, you could. We, we've had scenarios where, you know, we we talk very seriously with somebody who's leading a function about does that function have a long term place in the mm-hmm. company, and it is a real hard conversation to have. And for somebody to come up and show up, it gets the best outcomes. So I think that we've seen the huge value in really hard conversations coming mm. from that. And I just, I just think that's really important. You know, we also have fun too, but uh, <laughs> uh, I, I do think it's important to have fun because you spend so much of your time on it, but uh, I, I, I love that value. <laughs> Great. I think those were all my questions. Any last words that you wanted to share with the audience? Start a healthcare company or join Eden. Those, <laughs> those are my words. But don't start a competitor to Eden. No, it's yeah. a competitor. Eden. Uh, <laughs> seriously, like we need more people. So I would love it if we had more competitors out there. We, that, it would, that would be better for everyone. And just so just because I know, I'm sure my MBA peers are wondering, but others might be as well. Are you guys hiring right now? And for what roles? We are hiring for every role that so you could imagine. So clinical roles, product, engineering. We're hiring sales folks on the business development side where we've got tons of hires. So if you can't find it on our website, send me an email. Sounds good. Thank you, Matt. All right. Thank you. 